Well, if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to Romans chapter 4, and we want to look at verses 9 through 17 this morning. Romans 4, 9 through 17, by faith according to grace is what I've titled the message here this morning. And let's ask the Lord to bless our time in the Word. Lord, again, we thank you for your Word. Minister to our hearts as we study together. Give me grace to teach accurately and clearly. I pray it would be profitable for us as a people. And Lord, if there's anyone that is listening that has not yet come to a saving faith in Christ, I pray that you would work in their hearts uh, to bring them to yourself even today. So we commit our, our time in the Word now to you. pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, you'll note on the overhead we have the, uh, the outline of the book of Romans that we are studying. The theme is the righteousness of God, the gospel of God. And we are in that section in Romans uh, 3.21 through 5.21, justifi- justification by grace through faith. Now in Romans, Paul writes like a lawyer, uh, presenting the most systematic presentation of the gospel that we find in the Bible. Well, after the prologue, he starts with the bad news of our universal sin problem, concluding with, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. Well, this is then followed by the good news. The word gospel means good news. And it is the news that God has made a way for us to be right, that is, righteous, on the basis of two things. Number one, on the divine side, God in grace has taken care of our sin problem in the person of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is emphasized and underscored with two key words. One, redemption. Redemption means to set free by paying a price. And the price was the blood of Jesus. It's through the blood of Christ that we are set free from the penalty of sin. And the other word is propitiation. You love that $50 word, don't you? You use it often, don't you, in your homes? I'm sure. Uh, propitiation is a, it's a beautiful word. It's the idea of appeasing God's wrath. Propitiation is the appeasement of God's wrath, both of which are provided in the person of Christ. He's our redeemer. He's our propitiation. That's number one. Number two, on the human side, we must personally appropriate the truth of Jesus Christ by faith, by faith alone. This is the human side of response, the response of faith. In Romans 3, 21 through 31, Paul hammers home justification by faith alone, apart from works. Now, faith works, but we're not saved by works. We're saved by a faith that works. We're saved by faith alone. It's a living faith. It then works its way out in our life. Well, having uh, emphasized uh, we're saved by faith alone, justification by faith alone in chapter 3, in Romans 4, 1 through 8, Paul illustrates this truth in the life of Abraham and then a little footnote with David. Abraham is the example of justification by faith alone. And David is an example that the man of faith does not have sin imputed even if he should fall. And David fell hard. And yet sin was not imputed, put to his account. So this combination illustrates that we're saved by faith alone. And in that faith, we have eternal security. 
we are not saved by faith and then remain saved by works. No. We are saved just by faith alone. And once saved by faith, if it's a true saving faith, we're always saved. That's the point. The whole point is that we have justification by faith alone apart from works. And that's true throughout. Works neither contribute to our salvation nor keep us saved. We are saved by faith alone apart from anything that we do. Well, Paul drives home this point in Romans 4, 4, and 5. These are great memory verses. These are some of the strongest verses in the Bible that plainly state that we are not saved by anything we do, but rather just by faith alone. Notice what it says here. Romans 4, 4, and 5. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. And then he says, but to him who does not work, not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. It's all about faith, not works, faith. Note a true saving faith does not depend on self-works at all. It depends on nothing that I do. No sacraments, no prayers, no good works. Nothing whatsoever that I do in the flesh. Rather, a saving faith believes on the Lord. And note God justifies, that is, declares righteous, who? Can you believe it? Is it in your Bible? Yes, it's there. He justifies the ungodly who put their faith in him. You see, a sinner does come as he is. You don't say, well, you clean yourself up, come back, and we'll talk about it. No, 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 no. You come as you are. A, a sinner does not clean himself up because he can't do it. He simply believes on the Lord Jesus Christ. And God, on the basis of faith alone, accounts him as righteous. That is justification by faith alone. Stephen Cole writes, uh, So why does Paul keep hammering on this truth that God's righteousness is credited to us by faith alone? That's a great question. I mean, he hammers it from every direction. He says, I think it's because he knows how deeply embedded in the fallen human heart is the idea that we can do something to commend ourselves to God. The last two millennia of human history prove him to be right. All religions, including the major ones that go under the label of Christian, are works-oriented. They teach what Paul explicitly and repeatedly denies here. That at least in part we are saved by keeping religious rituals and by our good deeds. And Paul is saying it has nothing to do with it. Your good deeds, your religious rituals have nothing to do with it. Illustrated in the person of Abraham explicitly. So in the end you have two kinds of people. Those who are trying to be saved... And those who are trusting in God for salvation. You have trying in contrast to trusting. And those two are mutually exclusive. Those who are trying typically fall into one of two errors. Number one, they often think they're good enough or can be good enough to somehow merit salvation. I'm making a contribution. It's kind of like a, a, du a dual effort here. You know, it's a team effort. Jesus and me. Between the two of us, we'll get there. No, no, no. Uh, it's all Jesus. They're wrong. And then if uh, they 
maybe think, well, I'm not totally good enough, but I think my religious uh, rituals, observances, the rites, religious rites will, will help me on to God. And again, they are dead wrong. Paul has already at great length proven that none are good, that all come short of God's standard. But the Jews, you understand, were heavy into religious rituals and legal observations to the point of putting their faith in these things instead of trusting in God alone. And this brings us to where we are now in Romans 4, 9 through 17. Let's read it together. Romans 4, 9. Does this blessedness then come upon the circumcised only or upon the uncircumcised also? For we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. Now, Paul has just described the blessedness of the person, quote, to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works, verse 6, and to whom the Lord shall not impute sin, verse 8. This is a description of salvation based on faith alone. This is the person who is blessed. They're in the blessed position of being in a right relationship with God. It is this idea of blessedness, uh, which is rooted in having a righteous standing before God on the basis of faith alone that drives this entire section that we are studying this morning. This is the big idea in this whole context. But now the question is this. Does this blessed position of having faith accounted for righteousness apply only to the circumcised, that is to the Jews, or does it also apply to the uncircumcised, that is, believing Gentiles? Well, the Jews put tremendous stock in the outward rite of circumcision. Ever since Abraham, it had been a mark that they were the special chosen people of God, set apart from the Gentiles. This is what set them apart. So the Jews commonly thought that their circumcision was a guarantee that they were saved and that no circumcised Jew would ever go to hell. I mean, it was their security, their fire insurance. But they were wrong on this. And Paul is about to school them in this regard. Paul is about to show them that even ungodly Gentiles are saved in the exact same way as religious Jews, namely, by faith alone. Verse 10, he continues his thought. How then was it accounted? I mean, his, this righteousness that was put to Abraham's account. How was it accounted? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. What was Abraham's experience? How did he come to have this righteousness accounted to him? Did it happen while, uh, did it happen after he was circumcised or before? Well, Paul dogmatically states, not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. Now, if you're a Jew, this really, you've got your antenna sticking through the roof here. In fact, the record of Genesis shows that God accounting Abraham righteous on the basis of faith alone in Genesis 15, 6, took place at least 13 years, probably more like 14 years before he was circumcised. So note, uh, as we follow the record through here, Genesis 15, 6 accounted righteous. 
But then in chapter 16, when he was 86 years old, which would have been a, at least a year later, we think, uh, we have the, uh, he's 86 at, at the birth of Ishmael. And then in chapter 17, we find he's 99 years old when he's circumcised. You do the math, that's at least 13 years later he was circumcised. So he's been just accounted righteous for 13 years before he was circumcised. The point is, Abraham was declared righteous by God on the basis of his belief long before he was ever circumcised. His circumcision, therefore, had nothing to do with making him righteous before God. Rather, he was justified by faith alone. Note the order, faith, justification, and then circumcision. If you get this order mixed up, you'll be messed up in your theology in a big way. Abraham first believed, and then that belief was accounted to him for righteousness. And then at least 13 years later, he was circumcised. What Paul is doing is unpacking the principle he has already stated in Romans chapter 3, 29 and 30. Remember what he said there? Romans 3, 29. Or is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also. And the Jews say, well, how can that be? They're not circumcised. Paul is saying, no, uh, circumcision doesn't have anything to do with making you righteous. He continues, since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. The, the, the common denominator is faith. It's by faith on all cases, in all cases. Now, amazingly, Abraham was, in effect, declared a righteous man by God while yet being in the state of a Gentile because the Jews considered an uncircumcised person to be an unclean Gentile. But here Paul lets the record clearly show that Abraham was accounted righteous long before he was circumcised, simply on the basis of faith alone. Therefore, righteousness on the basis of faith alone is not merely a Jewish reality, but rather one that applies to the Gentiles as well. It applied to Abraham in his state of being a Gentile, if you will, before he was in a state of being a Jew. That is, while he was still uncircumcised. Well, thus, the argument of Paul here really turns the Jewish boast of circumcision on its head. It is not the Gentile who must first come to Jewish circumcision for salvation. Rather, it is the Jew who must come to a Gentile type of faith, if you will. That is, a faith alone, just like Abraham had prior to being circumcised. I mean, if you're a Jew, this just turns your world upside down. Therefore, the truth of justification by faith alone applies to everyone, whether Jew or Gentile. So then, what was the purpose of circumcision? I mean, if circumcision has nothing, what, what purpose does it serve? Well, Paul answers this question in verses 11 and 12. Verse 11, And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all those who believe, though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness might be imputed to them also. Circumcision as a sign of the covenant relationship 
began with Abraham. But it also had special significance and meaning in relationship to Abraham personally. And God sovereignly worked in the timing of this of everything that's happening here. Uh, he worked in the, in the timing of when it happened, also for a very special purpose. Now, once again, we note how very important it is to rightly divide the word of truth. The argument of Paul here is very precise because God did it exactly the way he did for a special reason. To begin with, Abraham received circumcision as a sign and a seal of the righteousness of faith, which he already possessed as an uncircumcised man, as we noted, for 13 years before he was circumcised. He was not circumcised so he could become righteous. But because he already was righteous on the basis of faith. You see, circumcision for Abraham, as it says here, was a sign and a seal of his righteous standing before God. Signs point to something. And in this case, the sign pointed to the faith of Abraham. The the faith Abraham had and the righteousness that was accounted to him on that basis. Seals were used in the Bible days to authenticate a document that was genuine. For example, if the king issued a letter, it would have the king's seal on it as serving proof that it was from him. A sign points to something, whereas a seal guarantees it. Thus, Abraham's circumcision pointed to his being righteous by faith, and it also served as God's validation. Abraham's circumcision uniquely had God's authenticating seal of his faith upon it. Now going forward, that could not be said of eight-day old babies. Track with me. Going forward, God instructed that Jewish babies were to be circumcised when they were eight days old. Now, male babies eight days old do not have faith. I mean, that seems pretty elementary, although there are many professing Christians who believe they do have a a sort of faith that's, that's imparted to them through the act of baptism. We'll talk more about that in a minute. But eight day old babies do not have faith. They were to be circumcised as a sign of the covenant, as God says in Genesis 17, 11. But nothing is said that it would be a seal of the righteousness of their faith. Because, in truth, eight-day-old babies do not yet have faith. Thus, circumcision, serving as a seal of the righteousness of his faith, is uniquely stated to be the case in relationship only to Abraham. Stephen Cole, a sign is not the real thing, but it points to it. A seal authenticates or attests to the reality of something. A notary's seal on a document attests that it is the real thing. You see, a seal doesn't make it so. It simply serves as a validation of something. It has been stated that in the circumcision of Abraham, God was merely confirming and adding his signature to his earlier pronouncement that Abraham was righteous by faith alone. 
A seal is a confirmation of what is already in place. Circumcision for Abraham was an outward verification of an inward faith reality. It did not confer righteousness, but it further confirmed it. Now going forward, the sign of circumcision was an outward indication that God was in special covenant relationship with Israel as a people. However, God intended all along that the outward physical reality have a corresponding inward heart reality. And in fact, the outward reality without the inward reality really counted for nothing. It was the inward heart reality that was of utmost importance. Note in Deuteronomy 10, 16, Therefore circumcise the foreskin of your heart, be stiff-necked no longer. You got a heart problem, God is telling his people. You need a, a heart operation, a circumcision of the heart. The hardness of your heart needs to be cut away where you're soft towards me and responsive towards me. Jeremiah 4, 4, circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Take away the foreskins of your hearts. Now, Paul has already made this point back in chapter 2. We read in chapter 2, 28 and 29. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. It's not about the outward flesh. But he is a Jew, a true Jew, one who's in true covenant relationship with God. He is a Jew who is one inwardly. Circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. So right here at Romans chapter 4, verse 11, there has been tremendous confusion brought in by those who claim that baptism is the counterpart of circumcision. Now, it is true that there is uh, some symbolic similarities between circumcision and baptism. But there are also major and significant differences. Now, covenant theologians see baptism as essentially corresponding to circumcision in the Old Testament. And on this basis, they justify infant baptism. Now, I mean, that's the major culprit here as far as Protestant. Uh, the Protestants out here. Uh, others as well, but, you know, let's talk about covenant theologians for a moment because it's a part of their whole system. Furthermore, based on Romans 4.11, they claim that baptism is a seal of the covenant. As a seal, baptism supposedly actually does something when it's administered to the child. It supposedly seals them under the new covenant, which is the position of salvation. Now, that's a problem. Uh, Daniel Lane says, if the seal is related to getting saved, then how can this be reconciled with the affirmation that believers are saved by faith alone? That's a great question. If salvation is by faith alone, it seems to be doublespeak to say that a sacrament, a physical ritual is part of the process. These tensions within the Reformed doctrine of infant baptism result from the fact that Reformed theologians view baptism as a covenantal seal. And they get it right here in Romans 4.11. Physical circumcision related to Israel is completely distinct from believer's baptism in the New Testament church age. 
Here again, if you don't keep Israel distinct from the church, you have a mega problem. Never do we find infant baptism in the New Testament. Only believers' baptism. And not only that, if one was to be consistent, only male babies should be baptized, as only male babies were circumcised. And baptism is never said to be a seal in the New Testament. In fact, circumcision as a seal was unique to Abraham and did not apply to Jewish babies in the Old Testament because they had not yet even come to faith. You understand? You can't seal something which is not yet a reality. Sealing is a confirmation reality. Let that sink in. Now, in the New Testament, baptism is not said to be the seal, but rather the Holy Spirit is said to be the believer's seal in Ephesians 1.13 and 4.30. Uh, in the MacArthur Study Bible, uh, in the index under baptism, it has all kinds of entries, but it has an entry uh, that uh, it says this, Scripture supporting infant baptism, Proverbs 30, verse 6. You turn to Proverbs 30, verse 6, and it says, Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. Exactly. One of the strongest points that Paul makes in the New Testament is that circumcision has nothing to do with saving a person. And he had to make that point repeatedly because it was such a huge issue in the early church in which many Jews were coming to profess Christ. And there were lots of Judaizers who wanted to say, yeah, we believe in Jesus, but we're also clean to certain elements of the law, including circumcision. Note uh, Paul's emphasis here. Galatians 5, 6, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything. It, it, it doesn't matter. What does? What does avail? Faith working through love. A living faith that demonstrates itself in love. Galatians 6, 15, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything. Said it twice in the book of Galatians. What does avail? A new creation. Colossians 3, 11, there is neither... Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Just as the Jews clung to circumcision as a means of salvation, many professing Christians cling to baptism as a means of salvation. John Phillips says, No doctrine has been more instrumental in persuading lost people that they are really saved than the doctrine of baptismal regeneration. Here, Rome has taken the lead, but many Protestant churches have followed that lead using covenant theology as their justification for doing so. It's a huge issue here. Just as in the case of circumcision, to put your trust in a ritual, whether circumcision or baptism, is to hold to a false gospel. It's not Jesus plus circumcision that saves. It's not Jesus plus baptism that saves. It's Jesus alone. It's faith alone in Jesus alone that saves. Yet today, multitudes of professing Christians practice some form of baptismal regeneration, which in effect is the same old error as that which Paul battled in the New Testament concerning circumcision. However, I don't want you to misunderstand. Circumcision in the Old Testament was important as a sign. Moses was negligent in circumcising his son, 
and God nearly killed him for it, as seen in Exodus 4, 24 through 26. Likewise, in the New Testament, baptism is an important outward testimony as a sign of identification that follows faith. It's a command that we are to obey after we believe. We believe and we are saved, period. Nothing more is needed for salvation. However, if we truly believe, then we are commanded to outwardly identify with Christ in baptism. And the expectation of the New Testament is that we will do so. Not to get saved, but to be a testimony that we have put our faith in Christ and we now identify with Him. But there is one more thing to note here in Romans 4, 11. You say, how in the world are we ever going to get through all these verses? Well, that's a, you're people of faith, aren't you? Anyway... There's one more thing to note here in Romans 4.11 concerning Abraham's circumcision. God had a unique purpose in first bringing him to faith and then later having him circumcised. The timing is very important here. The purpose was so that, as it says here in the text, Abraham might be the father of all those who believe, though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness might be imputed to them also. You see, God intended for Abraham to be the prototype of all believers. He's the God-ordained model. The justification is by faith alone. And that is what it means when it says that he might be the father of all those who believe. William MacDonald says, When it says Abraham is the father of believing Gentiles, there is no thought of physical descent, of course. It simply means that these believers are his children because they imitate his faith. He is the spiritual father of all believers in the sense that we as believers who follow after him share in the very same type of faith. That is a saving faith patterned after him. And note it was a faith not dependent upon circumcision or on anything else other than the word of God's promise. Abraham had the righteousness of faith. While still uncircumcised, he is the God-ordained, the God-illustrated pattern of saving faith. And for that reason, he is called the father of all those who believe, though they are uncircumcised. Now, as Gentile believers, we have righteousness imputed to us just like Abraham did. That is on the basis of faith alone. Galatians chapter 3, 6, and 7. Just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness, therefore we know that only those who are of faith are the sons of Abraham. We follow in the footsteps and the pattern, exact same pattern as Abraham. But not only is Abraham the father of uncircumcised believers, he is also the father of circumcised believers. Verse 12, And the father of circumcision to those who not only are of circumcision, but who also walk in the steps of the faith which our father Abraham had while still uncircumcised. Note the language carefully here. Yes, Abraham was the physical father through Isaac and Jacob, of the physical Jews, who were commonly called the circumcision because this outward sign 
so definitely defined them. But note the qualifier here. He is not talking about those who are merely circumcised, but rather about those who also walk in the steps of the faith that Abraham had while still uncircumcised. That is, those who share in the same kind of faith that Abraham had prior to his circumcision. In other words, true believing Jews are saved by faith alone. In the bare promise of God, just like Abraham was saved, the outward sign of circumcision had nothing to do with their salvation. And therefore, true believers don't trust in it for salvation. Abraham was not justified because he had been circumcised. He was circumcised because he had been justified. The same is true of water baptism. A man is not saved because he has been water baptized. He is water baptized because he has been saved. You see, it's not the right, R-I-T-E, that makes a person right, R-I-G-H-T, in God's sight. First, you must be right in God's sight by faith, and then the right becomes right. You got that, right? True believers, whether Jewish or Gentile in background, are all saved on the same basis. That is faith alone. Just like Abraham, who believed God's promise in Genesis 15, 6, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. So the nature of saving faith is the same in all cases. Although now on this side of the cross, we believe in the progressive revelation of God as seen in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. The object of our faith today is specifically the person and the work of Christ. But the nature of saving faith is the same. We trust in the promise of God alone, the promise given through Jesus Christ. Note that it specifically says here, those with saving faith walk in the steps of the faith of Abraham. Now this indicates that a saving faith is a living faith that walks. That is, it demonstrates itself in the life. Note there is a difference between Abraham's descendants and the spiritual children of Abraham. Jesus brings this out very clearly in John chapter 8. Uh, we got this interaction between Jesus and the Jews. I know that you are Abraham's descendants. This is 837. I know that you are Abraham's descendants, but you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. So yeah, he's acknowledging, yeah, you're, you're his descendants, all right. But you jump down to verse 39. They answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. You see, they were his descendants, but they were not really Abraham's children. They were not his spiritual children. This shows very clearly that the concept of being Abraham's children means that his children share in the same kind of faith that he had and emulate his walk of faith. Like father, like child, in terms of character, a character shaped by saving faith. They share in the same kind of faith, and this then demonstrates itself in their life. So these Jews in John 8 were indeed the descendants of Abraham, but they were not his spiritual children. Uh, heretical view, faith plus works equals justification. That's heretical. Biblical view, faith equals justification plus works. The works are the fruit. 
Abraham is the spiritual father of all who believe in that he exemplifies a saving faith that all true believers who follow after him emulate. Now, in the sovereignty of God, Abraham is the perfect pattern or prototype because he perfectly intersects with uncircumcised believers as well as circumcised believers. With the common denominator, being faith alone is what saves. He's the perfect model in that he was saved as a Gentile without circumcision. And yet at the same time, it was through him that the covenant sign of circumcision was instituted. Thus, Abraham is the father of all who believe, both of believing Gentiles and believing Jews. They can all look to him as the great model. All true believers share in the same kind of faith that defined Abraham. Just like Abraham, true believers are saved by faith alone, but it's a living faith that then demonstrates itself in the life. Well, the Jews prided themselves on circumcision and also the law. Paul has dealt at length here with the issue of circumcision, showing it has nothing to do with saving a person. But now in verses 13 through 17, he deals with the issue of the law. Verse 13. For the promise that he would be heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. The promise here in context relates to Abraham being the father of all believers, as just noted in verses 11 and 12. And the flow of thought leads to him being the father of many nations, as we will see in verse 17. But all the way through... Those Abraham is the father of refers to his spiritual heirs, his spiritual children who share in his faith. This really is what Paul is dealing with in this context. Now, in the end, when it says he is the heir of the world, uh, in the end, the world will be filled with believers who share in the faith of Abraham. Only these will go into the kingdom. And in the end, the eternal kingdom will be comprised of only true believers. Only those who ultimately share in the faith of Abraham are going to see the kingdom in its eternal state. It's in this sense that Abraham was promised to be the heir of the world. We find in Luke chapter 13 that they will come from the east and the west, the north and the south, and they will sit down with Abraham in the kingdom. Who? Well, those who have the righteousness of faith. Now, this exact phrase, heir of the world, is not found anywhere in the Scriptures, by the way. But the context makes it clear that Paul is talking about spiritual heirs who share in Abraham's faith. All those who will share in the world to come are those who have the righteousness of faith. Note the promise is not only in regard to Abraham, but also in relation to his seed his children, who have the righteousness of faith. Paul's point is that those who will share in the world to come don't arrive there by way of the law, but rather through the righteousness of faith. We are saved by faith, and we will partake in the kingdom world to come on the basis of our faith. This is true of Abraham. It's true of all believers. The historical reality is that the law was given 430 years after the time of Abraham, as Paul clearly says in Galatians 3.17. Therefore, the law had nothing to do with saving Abraham. That is the point. Abraham was not saved on the basis of law-keeping, but rather by faith. 
The same is true for all believers who follow after him. Again, Galatians chapter 3. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. And then verse 29, And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, his children, and heirs according to the promise. Verse 14, For if those who have the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise made of no effect. You see, the promise is the word of God. And believers, as they believe in God's word, his promise, are accounted as righteous. This principle of entering into what God has promised by faith alone is diametrically opposed to being right with God on the basis of law keeping. You can't have it both ways. You are either heirs of God's promise by faith or by law keeping. It's one or the other. And Paul is very clear, it's only by faith, not by law keeping. And that we are heirs of God's promise by faith. Here is the problem with law keeping. Here's the problem. No one keeps it. No one can keep it. Man's inability to keep the law would mean that God's promise could never be fulfilled. I mean, if that's the condition, it would never be fulfilled. If the condition of God's fulfilling the promise is based on man keeping the law, then the promise is in effect made void because it's impossible for people to do it. Man's disobedience to the law would make the promise of no effect. There has to be another way, and there is, and that is the way of faith. The principle of faith is the opposite of the principle of law. You see, faith is a matter of believing, while law is a matter of doing. The one cancels out the other. One is either saved by believing or by doing. It can't be both, and it can't be by doing because of man's inability to keep the law. Verse 15, because the law brings about wrath. For where there is no law, there is no transgression. Here's what the law does. Here's what the law will do for you. It brings wrath. Always amazes me these people want to take us back to the Old Testament, put us under aspects of the law. And you understand the law was a, 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 a whole, a systematic whole. Uh, whoever should keep the whole law and yet offend you one point is guilty of all. If you want to go under the law, you've got to keep the whole law, all 613 laws. What does the law do for you? Well, it brings wrath. It doesn't bring blessedness, the blessedness of being right with God. Rather, it brings wrath. The principle is this. There are consequences for disobedience. If there is no law, there's no transgression. Transgression means stepping over. In disobedience, it crosses the line of righteousness that God has drawn. The point is, the law, instead of helping us on to God, further builds a case for God's wrath against those who disobey. And the problem is, as Paul has already at length shown, we all disobey the law. Either God's moral law written on our hearts, 2.15, or his written law that he has prescribed in the law of Moses. Thus, the law is not the way to be right with God. It just exposes our wrongness and calls for the punishment of it. For this reason, Paul in 2 Corinthians 3 calls the law the ministry of death, 2 Corinthians 3.7, and the ministry of condemnation, 3.9. But God in his sovereignty, praise the Lord, God in his sovereignty has made a way. Verse 16, therefore, in light circumcision does nothing for us, the law does nothing for us, 
Therefore, it is of faith that it might be according to grace, so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Note that this verse is emphasizing that faith is in accordance with grace. The Greek literally reads, therefore by faith in order that according to grace. The emphasis at this point is on on faith, which is in accordance with grace. This is important because some theologians want to make faith a matter of works, saying that to tell people they must believe amounts to a work salvation. Because spiritually dead people, after all, can't believe. Now, I agree that on our own, no one can come to faith. As Paul says in Romans 3.11, there is none that seeks after God. God is ever the seeker. But at some point, when God is seeking, when God is speaking, the onus does fall on human responsibility and human response. As Hebrews 3 says, today if you will hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Paul in Romans 1.5 and then again at the end of the book in 16, 15, 25, and 26 describes this required response as the obedience of faith. And when people respond in faith to God's working in their hearts, that is in accordance with grace, not contrary to it. Faith and grace go together. They are partners. Grace is all God's doing. But faith intersects with human response and human responsibility. There's mystery here. But I believe a faithful biblicist holds to both realities because both are taught in the Bible. Paul's point is that the position of blessedness, the state of being righteous before God, is based on faith alone in the word or the promise of God, which is in accordance with grace. It's not based on our works or law-keeping, but rather on faith, which appropriates the unmerited favor of God. Nelson's study Bible, God promises to Abraham, God's promises to Abraham were founded on his faith. So it would be acknowledged that salvation was only through grace, that is, God's favor. All the way through Romans 3 and 4, Paul's main point is that justification is by faith alone which is non-meritorious, which is in contrast to law-keeping, and works, which are all merit-based in an orientation. Faith is according to grace, while law is according to works. God's way of acquiring righteousness is by faith alone, which is according to grace. Let me give you some quotes here that I think are really good. Uh, ESV study Bible. Faith means trusting another, not one's not one's own efforts. Faith, therefore, corresponds exactly to grace. John Phillips, it is faith which links us to that grace, that unmerited favor. William Newell, salvation is of God, not man. It's a faith, and so of grace, and thus of God. And then John Stott says, our human response can only be faith, for grace gives and faith takes. Faith's exclusive function is humbly to receive what grace offers. And then Stephen Lawson, faith and grace can never be partners with law-keeping. Faith and grace can never be partners with circumcision or water baptism. Faith and grace can never work in partnership with good works in order to give us a right standing before God. Faith and grace are discriminatory 
they will only work with each other. There you go. Salvation is by faith according to grace. To the end, the promise might be sure to all the seed. We can be sure. This faith grace formula has surety, assurance, security written into it. If it were by law, we could never be sure because we can never count on self. It always fails. We always fail. But since faith is according to grace, we can be sure because the promise of God never fails. God has promised security to those who believe in him. In grace, God will bring to pass what he has promised. And this applies to all believers, whether Gentile or Jew. Note that the promise might be sure to all the seed, that is to all believers, not only to those who are of the law, that's Jews, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. This is simply saying that all who share in Abraham's kind of faith have the security that God will bring to pass what he has promised them and which they have believed. God says, you believe and I promise you security based on my grace. And again, we have the emphasis that Abraham is the father of us all. That is the spiritual father, so to speak, of all true believers because all have a faith that is patterned after him, which is to say faith based on the bare word of God. So note the emphasis being developed, which is that we are saved by faith alone, just like Abraham, and that this saving faith results in a secure, blessed relationship with the Lord. Saving faith is a place of security because it's according to grace and not dependent upon our works. So here is what the, the flow is. Abraham had righteousness put to his account on the basis of faith alone, Romans 4, 3. David, as a man of faith, did not have sin imputed to his account, Romans 4, 8. Once you have faith, sin is no longer imputed to your account. You're declared righteous, and that stands, even if you fall like David. And then the promise of righteousness on the basis of faith, according to grace, is made sure to all who share in the faith of Abraham. (laughs) This is security. It's made sure. The law was only officially given to the Jews, who couldn't keep it anyway. But God's promise is attained by faith according to grace so that it may be guaranteed to all who believe, whether they be Jew or Gentile. That little word all at the end of verse 16 is all important because it emphasizes that Gentiles also who come by faith are securely saved just as much as Jews who are people of faith. There's no difference. And then Paul continues his thought into verse 17. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. In the presence of him whom he believed, God, who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. The first part of verse 17 is parenthetical. It's a parenthetical quote from Genesis 17, 5 to reinforce the idea of what Paul has just said about Abraham being the father of us all. Uh, In uh, Genesis 17, 5, it says, No longer shall your name be called Abram, But your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. 
The name Abram, uh, the short version, the name Abram means exalted father. But God at this point, prior to the birth of the promised son Isaac, gave him a new name. The name Abraham, which means father of a multitude. As quoted here, the application relates to all those of faith who would follow Abraham from a multitude of nations. Note the verse does not say, I will make you, but rather, I have made you. Meaning that God would certainly bring this promise to pass. It is so certain that God speaks of it as already having been accomplished. After the parenthetical thought, Paul continues his thought from verse 16, which is that Abraham is the father of all believers. And then it says, in the presence of him whom he believed, God. What makes Abraham the father of the many was that he believed in God. And then at the end of verse 17, it describes the nature of his faith. It is God who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. Now you have to understand there's a context here. We'll get to the rest of it next week, Lord willing. But in the immediate context, we find that both Abraham and Sarah are shown to have been reproductively dead. You know what that means? They weren't having intercourse at this point in their life. They were reproductively dead. How are you going to get a child with that kind of situation? We got deadness all over here. He's dead reproductively. She's dead. Oh boy, this is a big problem. You just gave me the name multitude, uh, father of a multitude. How's this going to happen? I mean, that's a pretty big challenge. But God has promised it. What makes Abraham the father of the many was that he believed in God. In the immediate context, we find they were reproductively dead. For God to bring forth a promised child eventuating in a multitude of descendants would necessitate, are you ready for this? A miracle. A miraculous intervention. That's what Abraham believed God for. A miracle. You know, uh, you go out to the the grave of a loved one who has died as a believer. You believe one day they're going to come out of those graves. You know what that's going to require? A miracle! When's the last time you saw somebody come out of the grave? You believe it? You have the same kind of faith Abraham had. Believing God for a miracle. That's the idea here. This would involve God doing the impossible, namely giving life to the dead and bringing into existence those things which were previously non-existent. Both of these are descriptive of the miraculous. And Abraham's faith was in relation to this promise. The nature of Abraham's faith involved believing in God to do the impossible, to make him a father of a multitude. This was faith in the bare word of God that required a supernatural act of God to bring it to pass. This defined the nature of Abraham's faith that all true believers now share in. We believe in the God of miracles. We believe in his power, that he can do what he says. We take him at his word. As a footnote, we see that Abraham's faith was in response to divine revelation. You see, faith is always taking God at his word. 
It's not like, well, I have this feeling. It's not based on anything other than my feeling, but I have faith. That's not faith. That's not faith. That's the pizza you had last night. No, no. Faith is taking God at his word. Authentic biblical faith only exists as a response to divine revelation. As Romans 10, 17 says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Looking to the end of the chapter, we see this kind of faith is represented in believing in the resurrection of Christ, which also involved God doing the impossible by giving life to the dead. Well, Paul, throughout this whole context, affirms the priority of Abraham's faith. He was justified by faith alone. And his faith came first, before works, before circumcision, before the law. Thus, his faith was distinct from any outward works, religious rites or rituals, and any legal code. Abraham was saved by faith alone, which is in perfect accord with grace. As such, Abraham is the premier example of saving faith in all the Bible. So much so that he is called the father of all who believe. Adrian Rogers said this, The simple message of the gospel is to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That's the only requirement. Why does God do it that way? Well, Romans 4.16 says, Therefore it is a faith that it might be by grace. If there were any other requirement than belief, then it wouldn't be by grace. What if God said, Everybody who wants to be saved, run around the block. Well, some people can't run. What if he said, Everyone's... Everybody who wants to be saved has to read a chapter in the Bible. Well, some people can't read. Or everybody who wants to be saved, give $100. Some people don't have $100. It's by faith that you are saved. That it might be by grace. Indeed, the only requirement that God demands is faith. Faith in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ in the end for all eternity There will be those who are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And then there are all the others who will be lost forever. Paul in Romans 1.16 said, The gospel is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. The ultimate question is, have you believed in the gospel? The good news of our Lord Jesus Christ. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Let's stand and have our closing song.